This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Report. Let's do the show, folks. Gum, gum, gum. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Woo! Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Hey guys, welcome back to the Star Wars Report Podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton, and I'm really excited for this week's episode. Um, This is another kind of special interview format episode where we have a very special guest, a guy who is really in at the ground floor of the relaunch of Star Wars fandom back in the 90s. Everything from the fan club to the magazine to Lucasfilm to the prequels production. It's Mr. Dan Madsen. So uh, without further ado, hope you guys enjoy. You're listening to the Star Wars Report. Faster, more intense. All right, everybody, we've got on the line, uh, on the other side, uh, well, of the Skype machine anyway, it's Mr. Uh, Mr. Dan Madsen. How's it going, Dan? I'm good, Riley. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, coming on the Star Wars Report. I'm looking forward to chatting. I am too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, so uh, I'm guessing a large percentage of our listeners are already familiar with, if not you, certainly your work um, with uh, the Star Wars fan club, with her universe, with um, with Star Wars Celebration. Like You have been deeply embedded in Star Wars fandom for, for a long time. I have. In fact, uh, I go way back to being a 14-year-old and being a fan like everybody else and seeing Star Wars A New Hope uh, in the theaters and going absolutely crazy over it and plastering my bedroom walls with posters of Darth Vader and Han Solo and uh, Princess Leia. And and uh, and it was um, because of that passion that ultimately led me to uh, Lucasfilm many years later to uh, – to um, get the license to do the official fan club, and, uh, and it's been a an amazing journey, Riley, over all these years. I was gonna ask, like, what was the was that the very first thing that you did with Lucasfilm was the fan club? It was, yeah, it was. You know, I started out um, with Star Trek. Actually, I was a big Star Trek fan as a chi- as a teenager, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started a fan club which came to the attention of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and Paramount Studios and uh, became the first official Star Trek fan club and started doing a, a newsletter which turned into a magazine. And it was because of that that um, I got Star Wars and Lucasfilm. Um, George Lucas and Howard Rothman, the head of licensing at the time, had seen what I was doing with Star Trek and they were closing down the official Star Wars fan club in-house after Return of the Jedi. And mm. I think it had been closed down about a year when um, they saw what I was doing for Star Trek. And it kind of dawned on them that, well, we're not doing the fan club in-house, but what if we license it to Dan outside and see what he can do with it? And so I had to put a whole presentation together and fly out to Skywalker Ranch and 
and do everything to uh, convince them that it was a good choice. And I did and got the license and um, became kind of, you might say, an outside arm of Lucasfilm. I uh, had access to just about everything you do for literally working on the inside of Lucasfilm, except uh, it was my own company and I was working out of Colorado and we launched the official Lucasfilm fan club. Um, and we decided to call it Lucasfilm because there were no plans to do any new Star Wars movies at this time. This was in 1987. I was going to ask, so this is right, or we're talking just barely after the, the, the glow of Return of the Jedi settled down and Skywalker Ranch had just gotten off the ground. That is correct. That is right. And uh, and so at that point, what was on Lucasfilm's plate was uh, Willow mm-hmm. and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And so in my discussions with uh, everyone at Lucasfilm, we all decided that, well, maybe we should, instead of relaunching it as the Star Wars fan club again, we should do it as the Lucasfilm fan club. And we could cover all these new projects they're working on because uh, there really wasn't anything new on the horizon for Star Wars. And mm. I you know, said, well, I could at least do a Star Wars feature every issue. And they said, yes, of course. But um, And so that's how it got launched. And we, we, uh, we literally launched it at the 10th anniversary convention out in Los Angeles. Uh, had a table there, and that's where I really um, – kind of uh, started signing up people and handing out flyers and just trying to get everybody to be aware that the fan club was back. But this time we were covering everything under the sun that was Lucasfilm, not just Star Wars. Mm. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, we were running the fan club during some of the lean years of, of Lucasfilm when there wasn't a whole lot to cover, quite frankly. I was going to say, yeah, because that's... I mean, I guess even Indiana Jones was kind of on the down, downward slope at that time. It, it, it was. That was the last movie. Uh, at, at that time, it was considered. It was planned to be the last indie movie. Was there a sense that, and and, and you actually know, I've never had the opportunity as many years as I've done Star Wars Report to to talk to anyone about that ten year anniversary convention. Was was how would how did that become a thing? Because that that's really. Pretty in the center of the sort of dead zone. It's like a couple years before *Heir to the Empire* comes comes out, and sort right. of the famous beginning of Star Wars's resurgence into the, into the pop culture. So I never never really asked anyone about that tenth anniversary convention. Like whose idea was that? Because that's I mean, even George at the time, as I understand, was was pretty removed from from Star Wars. He was, yeah, he was. Um, it was actually um, Lucasfilm's idea. They they teamed up with a company called Creation Entertainment, who at the time was doing a lot of Star Trek conventions, in fact. Um, and they decided for maybe the 10th anniversary that they should do something for the fans. Um, and so um, Creation and Lucasfilm teamed up to do this convention out in Los Angeles. And I don't even recall which hotel it was held at now out in L.A. Um, but um, it, it had a good turnout, and... Uh, had guests, uh, obviously, and uh, it was the the one time and only time that Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, met George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. And Gene came out on stage um, and surprised George. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, 
shook his hand and congratulated him on the 10th anniversary. And uh, it was in our fan club that uh, the one and only really photograph that's ever been put out there in the public um, was taken. And um, it's out there on the Internet all over the place. Uh, George and Gene meeting for the very first time, the, the two kings of the of the star franchises. And, um, yeah, it was, I think, three days. They had props. I remember um, archive area there where you could come and see some of the miniatures and ships and things from the Star Wars films. Um, it was it was like a little mini cre- um, celebration. Yeah, um, is well, what it was. Not quite. Not not as well done. Um, it wasn't. Um, it. I know that Lucasfilm wasn't really overly happy with it, and so. Uh, that's why I think it took a while for them to even think about doing something else again down the line. But um, was it too? It, was it just the format following the the start? Because at the time, Star Trek conventions, um, and, and when it's it's really hard, I think, for some of us, especially like me, who grew, grew up. The first convention I went to, the first big convention, was Star Wars Celebration. So it's hard to imagine. Right. But I, I just from what I know of, it had to be so different because the idea of Star Trek conventions or any kind of nerd type convention was a uh, a niche. It, now, now we call them popular culture divin- uh, conventions because that's what they are. The subject material is now part of popular culture, but it wasn't the case back that's then. Right. I could I could see because Star Wars is never really. That's one thing I guess that maybe just differentiated it. Maybe that's something that Lucasfilm wasn't quite satisfied with that time because they were trying to, I, I would imagine, fit into the mold of conventions at the time, which just doesn't really fit for what star wars is that's exactly right riley you're you're right on it's uh it was really um the format of a star trek convention but uh done for star wars and um and that's that's pretty much the feel of it um and it was um it was it it was successful for what it was at the time and uh you know i mean it was really unheard of because there had never been a Star Wars convention. Everybody knew of all the, the Star Trek conventions that were held all over the country. Yeah. Um, but uh, there had never been a Star Wars convention. And um, so, yeah, it was, you know, it, it didn't have the quality of the celebrations now. I mean, the celebrations now make that convention <laughs> look like amateur and professional, quite frankly. Yeah. But it was intimate. And it was small, and um, and it was the one, first one that had ever been held. So, uh, yeah, and, and we were there to uh, to launch the fan club again, relaunch the fan club, I should say. Yeah. Um, at that event, we had a table right out in the main the main hall, right there before you entered into the um, the main ballroom where all the big guests and everything were to take place. So in order to get in there, you had to come past the, the table for the new relaunch of the fan club. That's awesome. Well, and so fast forward, I guess it's uh, 20 years, um, mm-hmm. just about. The, the Where does the, the idea come for Star Wars Celebration? That was, that was something that it's interesting because we had been talking about within my company – which was then was called Fantastic Media, and we were running the official Star Wars and Star Trek fan clubs mm. out of Denver, Colorado here. Um, 
and we had been talking internally about, you know, wow, there should really be a, we should really do some sort of a special event now that Star Wars is being relaunched. It's all, you know, all this new prequels that are coming out. And lo and behold, out of the blue, I get a call from Steve Sansqui, who at the time was working with Lucasfilm. And he said, Dan, we've been talking here and we, we think a fan event should be done. We really think we should do something to kind of kick off this new era of Star Wars um, and we really think it's the, the fan club is the one that should do it. And I said, well, Steve, ironic that you should call because we've been talking about the same thing. So we made an appointment and I had several of my team members uh, with me fly out to Skywalker Ranch. And we sit down at a big conference table with Steve and head of licensing, Howard Rothman and all the others and, uh, and um, hashed out what kind of an event this would be um you know at the time we didn't want to call it a convention we wanted some other name or title for it henceforth celebration came up and um and so we started kind of putting together a blueprint of what we all thought it should be i took that blueprint brought it back to denver sat down with my team and um really just from you know the literally built it from the ground up as to what we should do, how we would market it, um, where it should be held. Did you have and that? Was uh, uh, sorry, interrupt, I was just, did you have a template? Did you have like, oh, they're doing it right. We want to do that, or was this just like from the ground up, from scratch? What was it like in the room when you guys were talking it over? From scratch, because we didn't want it to be uh, like a Star Trek convention. We wanted this to be an event of on a much bigger scale, mm. um, and so we we threw out what was at the time you know the kind of the 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 plan of what a convention was a sci-fi convention or a star trek convention and said you know this needs to be something really big and a more of an event type thing um and so we literally built it from the from the ground up and and um you know we had a lot of discussions as to where it should be held we talked about los angeles we talked about new york we talked about chicago um and ultimately i kept saying we should do it in denver because if i'm going to do it and that's where my whole team is and at that time i had just a little over 100 employees working for me and i knew all the volunteers and people who worked at all of our local conventions in the denver metro area mm. and i said you know i can keep a better hand on it and i can can get the bodies to help work it if we do it in Denver and Denver is centrally located in the country. Um, and so after, you know, discussions and discussions, uh, Lucasfilm agreed that, uh, the Denver would be the place to do it. And, um, and then, you know, the problem with it was, is that this was just about a year out as to when all of this came oh, man. Uh, to our attention. So we really didn't have a long time, to plan this thing out and um a lot of events you know had already booked a lot of uh, the locations here in the denver area like our, our we had the big convention um area here but it had already been booked for the dates that lucasfilm wanted us to hold the convention on and um they were kind of adamant that they wanted it to be held on those dates um so I started panicking a little bit. I started thinking, well, I went everywhere. Nobody had anything open. And that's when we came up with the Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum uh, here in, in Denver, 
which uh, was a giant hangar on a former Lowry Air Force Base that had all of these vintage aircraft in it. But it had a, they were starting to hold events in this big um, hangar. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, well, we could build these big giant, I would almost describe as circus tents, out in the parking lot area. And those could be the main stages. So if we can't have it all under one roof, that would be the next best thing to do. And I had to, you know, have Lucasfilm fly out and tour the whole facility and look at this and look at that and discuss with me what they thought we needed to do. And we had to spend some money fixing up the hangar because there were some some areas of it that didn't look so good. So we spent money to have that all fixed up. And... um, uh, ultimately, they agreed to go ahead and do it uh, at the uh, Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. And, you know, at the time we planned it, Riley, mm-hmm. never in my wildest dreams did I imagine that on the very weekend that we would do the event, that we would have the worst rainstorm in 100 years in Denver. It never dawned on me. <laughs> um, and I don't think it dawned on Lucasfilm either um, because it, uh, it was the end of uh, – um, April, beginning of May, and uh, while we do have some rain in Colorado at that time, nothing like what we we had <laughs> at that time. And it literally, it literally was. It was. It's down on on historically recorded now as the worst, the most rain that Denver's ever gotten in a forty-eight hour period was on the weekend that we held mm. Celebration One. So it's. Uh, it's kind of known as the uh, Star Wars Woodstock because <laughs> all the fans survived it through the mud and the rain and and it's, uh, it's legend. Like, still enjoyed it. Everyone I've talked to it, who, um, you know, me having entered the, my first celebration was all the way at uh, Celebration Five, and right. um, and I I still but whenever I talk to fans who are at the OG event. Um, at Celebration One, that's it. They, they do they talk about it like Woodstock. It's this like this moment <laughs> in time, right before the Phantom Menace. Um, like you guys and and you guys, the hunger. Yeah, we just have to put context on this. Even more so, I would say, than the Force Awakens of recent memory, the hunger totally. for for Phantom Menace had to be insane. So just the fact that you guys were holding that the convention at that time, right before the movie came out, I mean, we, it had to be nuts. We I have never seen. And I, I, I'll be honest, I don't think there will ever be another time like that period of time prior those several years up to episode one. The, the excitement and the buzz was palpable. You could, you could just feel it. Everything we were doing between the Star Wars Insider and all the merchandising that was starting to come out and the plans and preparations for Celebration 1, I had never seen nor experienced and nor will I ever again experience that kind of anticipation and excitement in the Star Wars community. You know, I mean, everybody had been so hungry for something new with Star Wars. You know, uh, we had the three original movies and, you know, the holiday special and Ewok shows, but you know, as far as major feature films, you know, those three movies were it. So the fact that star Wars was coming back to the movie screens, it, it was, um, astronomical. I've never experienced anything like it. And even the time building up to the force awakens, it, it still did not compare to that time moving into, um, the phantom menace. And, uh, 
So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And and to put on that event at that time, it was two weeks approximately before the movie came out, and um, the excitement of those people waiting just to see anything. Um, and we had some of the first footage that they got to see there. We had mostly um, all uh, episode one cast members and production people there at the event. That's what Lucasfilm really wanted. They wanted uh, all of the new era of Star Wars people to be there, um, along with Anthony Daniels, of course, who we can talk about in a little bit, who was so essential to that first event. Um, but, um, yeah, it uh, – I, I'll never experience anything like that time period in Star Wars history. It was unique. It was um, the first time. And uh, I, I can't even fathom that there will be another time, even going forward from here, that there will be that kind of excitement and buzz and anticipation as there was in that year prior to um, yeah. Episode One opening. It's a it's a moment in culture that uh, I I still remember because I I grew up um, primarily overseas. We moved back. To, my family moved back to the states in in two thousand one. So, but I do remember being in the states the summer of ninety nine, and I I didn't even see the movie that summer, but I just remember going over to a friend's house, Dan. And he had every single freaking Pepsi can collected in his bedroom. Uh, <laughs> and I just feel like, I, and I remember as a kid marveling at all the different characters and asking, is this a good, I, I was eight years old. And I was like, is this a good guy or bad guy? Is this a good guy or bad guy? And I'd always <laughs> guess wrong because like a lot of the ugly ones are still good guys. And yep. <laughs> so, but like that, that, that little moment, like it's, it's like emblazoned in my brain as a kid, even though I was just for a sliver of what, you know, popular culture was all about summer 99 we had we had i mean pepsi was at the event they had big giant inflatable oh yeah <laughs> pepsi cans with the uh with the uh the star wars characters on them you know uh, just like they they look in the stores with the the small actual pepsi cans um and lego was there building uh, a giant uh spaceship star wars ship um under a big tent um and um so yeah and you know hasbro um this was the first place that you could buy uh some of the the new episode one action figures so you can imagine the line (laughs) to get in we set up an entire room that was inside of the hangar that was basically the store um and people were only allowed to buy i think one of each figure Mm. um and hasbro sent certain ones i I don't even remember which figures were made available but that was the first place you could get them and so the excitement around the collectability Mm. of coming and getting those figures for the very first time you know before they were in any of the stores um and it's funny because i remember uh after the the last night of the convention or, or the celebration i should say um and all of our crews were cleaning up and putting everything away and I went to dinner with my with my good friend, and as we went to the restaurant, we had to drive right past the Toys R Us, and out the line all the way around the building, out into the parking <laughs> lot. That was the night that the figures were going to become available uh, at Toys R Us, mm. and I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, look at that line, and at midnight, everyone was going to be let in, and they're going to be able to buy all of those new 
Hasbro Star Wars Episode One toys and figures and such. But the first ones people were able to get at Star Wars Celebration One. Dang, it's um, yeah, Midnight Mad- Madness. It became a, Midnight a, a Madness. thing. Um, There's a whole thing. I I'm curious what um. Because we all sort of as fandom remember what it was like, but since you had the rare opportunity to be working closely with Lucasfilm at the time, what was what was it like kind of on the other side of the fence as the company's getting ready to return to start? Was there the same level of passion and, and, and excitement in that sort of moment before any any backlash or anything like that? Completely. I mean, everybody was so excited. I remember going out um, the year before the movie opened to Skywalker Ranch when they had a, a licensing summit um, for episode one. So all the licensees came out and um, we all got together, talked about, you know, they showed a whole marketing plan of, you know, what the plan was as far as episode one and then episode two and three and, and launching the merchandising lines. And then we all got to go to the theater there and got to see, I think about, 15 minutes of footage from episode one and it was just the crowd was going crazy i mean we they basically showed us the entire pod racing scene (laughs) um and and you know just seeing that alone by itself was pretty incredible because you know it, it was amazing to watch that whole thing and just to sit there and actually see something new from star wars on the big screen every single one of those licensees were just you know screaming and yelling and, and you know, at the top of their lungs how excited they were. Um, but yeah, you know, especially one of the things I tried to always do in my company was to hire people who were fans because I knew that if they loved what they were doing, they would do it even better. And so we had um, Star Wars fans and Star Trek fans that were working at our, at our fantastic media. And I had a call center um, where people would call in 1-800-TRUE-FAN and that's how they could order you know, any of the product in the Star Wars Insider or subscribe to it or renew their, their membership to the Star Wars fan club. And um, I can remember, you know, we had, I think we had about 30 call center people there. Mm. They were so pumped and excited and people were just calling uh, just and they would before they'd even place their order, they would just sit there for two or three minutes just talking about how exciting it was to be a Star Wars fan right now. Now, this was the new era, and everybody was just couldn't wait for uh, new Star Wars films to come out. And, oh, my God, they were just wanting to order everything that you could possibly order on it. And uh, it was just – it was a fun time, and people at Lucasfilm were excited about it. They were, you know, wow, you know, this is – we're back in the Star Wars business again, basically, you know, Mm -hmm. after really lying dormant for so long. Um and I think a lot of people there, when I first took over running the fan club, I would go out, I don't know, periodically and do interviews with George Lucas in his office there at Skywalker Ranch. And I would, every time, you know, I always had a question every time I talked to him. Well, what's happening with Star Wars? You know, <laughs> do you have any plans on doing new Star Wars? And it seemed like every time he'd say, well, I plan on getting back to it. You know, he says sometime soon he goes i i don't know when but i i plan on getting back to it you know and every time i'd kind of come back crestfallen thinking ah you know he (laughs) every time he tells me he's going to get back to it but he never does you know it's like when when are you going to get back to it you know and so when the first little trickle of 
word came into me that George actually was sitting down to write a mm. screenplay. And I thought, okay, now he's getting serious. Something's actually happening. And mm. each, over the course of the years prior to episode one, I kept getting little pits of information and this is now happening and this is now happening. And uh, it was just, it was exciting from all sides of the, of the, of the um, picture because people at Lucasfilm, people in my company, we were all getting excited. And then when the word hit to the public, oh my gosh, everything mm -hmm. just went do you, crazy. Do you remember the moment like when you first got wind that um, the prequels were happening? Yeah. I had a call from Howard Rothman, the head of licensing, mm. and he said, I've got some really good news for you. And I was kind of sitting down in my office, and I thought, oh, please, please, please let this be. Please, please. And he said, George is, is actually starting on Star Wars, and we're getting back to doing episode one, and here's when we expect to start filming on it. We expect to have it out in 1999. And I remember just, just being floored. I just thought, I've been waiting for this. For years, mm. and at, not only as a fan, but as someone who had a business interest in it, running the fan club, and I thought, I, I just, I can't believe that I'm actually hearing these words now that they're starting. It's actually production is going to be starting, you know, pre-production, working on the storyboards and the art, and very early on, I became good friends with Rick McCallum. Mm. Uh, who was producer, um, because I worked with Rick on the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Um, I had been doing the Lucasfilm Fan Club magazine, and I started covering the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles because that was one of the new things yeah. they were working on. And I was asked to write the book on the making of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, so I, I agreed to do that. And so I got to know Rick McCallum very well as a result of both of those things. And when I heard at the Licensee Summit that Rick McCallum was now going to be producer on the Star Wars prequels, I was like, well, there you go. I already know him, you know, and uh, that's great because I knew I had an in with him already. Um, and so it uh, it was pretty exciting to, um, to actually get to have access to him because he was a lot more open about what was going on than George was. George was pretty closed-mouthed, but... Rick would tell me everything and uh, well, some things that were meant for print and some that weren't. <laughs> well, Rick famous was famous for that. He's like an old school. We, we just talked um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. We were talking to uh, J.W. Rensler and he was kind of yeah. talking about the same era of Lucasfilm. And, and he described Rick as, as very like he's a traditional Hollywood producer. Yep. Um, which yep, absolutely. And he he invited me out to the ranch um, to come see what they were working on. Uh, uh, prior to um, um, way before they even started production and so I got to go out and there was this room at the top of the main house where George's office is and you he took me up the stairs and you had to do a special knock to get in the door <laughs> and you did a special knock to get in the door and you open the door and it's like going into Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as I come in there's Doug Chang, and he's working on some of the storyboard art and some of the original concept designs. And there's the bust of the of a of a um, of Jar Jar Binks and what he might look like. It wasn't exactly formed yet. Um, and so, and then there's all these little 
models of some of the new ships and uh, and some of the sketches and designs for all the new characters. I saw the very first drawing of what they thought Darth Maul might look like. Um, and, you know, I'm just sitting trying to take this all in, not only as the head of the fan club and where all this could come into play for the fan club and the magazine and everything, but as a fan, I'm just sitting there thinking, I can't believe I'm here. I'm just looking around thinking, I can't believe I'm seeing all of this stuff. Um, and then he sat down and showed me some of the early CG stuff they had done with special effects and everything. And, you know, and then as we walk out, I mean, I spent probably an hour and a half in there talking to everybody and Doug and everybody and asking them, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing this? You know, what's the idea behind this character? And, uh, and then as I walked out, you know, he closes the door and Rick says, now you can't say anything about this to anybody. And I'm like, uh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> I realized, I thought, man, I can't spill the beans to anybody. This is going to drive me crazy. And I didn't for the longest time. That's, that's amazing. And it's, uh, I, you, you paint the picture so well, Dan, I appreciate kind of just getting an idea of, of what that time was like, because as a kid who like the first Star Wars movie I ever saw was The Phantom Menace. And I have that sort of nostalgia of, of remembering that time and the first time I saw the movie. And I, I knew what a big deal Star Wars was. So the fact that Phantom Menace was my entry point kind of elevates it in my own sort of Star Wars nostalgia. So it, I really appreciate the kind of uh, picture that you paint. At the same time, I'm of the of the generation that I was you know, quote unquote, the right age when I saw it and, and loved the movie. But uh, I just want a frank and honest question. I feel like it's often talked to death in some ways online about the prequels and the backlash about the prequels. And we've kind of even forgotten sure. that conversation in the midst of all the Disney movies and everybody's opinions on them. And, but yeah. actually I, I would love to ask you, was there in, especially as someone who's running the fan club, like as far as you're pretty much as close as you can get to the fandom itself do you think that some of the Phantom Menace backlash, was that born out of the core Star Wars fandom, or was that more out of film media and then, I guess, later internet media? Well, I think it was born out of some of the um, film media, but but it was definitely – it definitely came from the fans too because, um, you know, from just looking at from – for instance, you know, we – as 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 sort of speak Star Wars Central, yeah. um, at that time. I mean, we were doing the official fan club. We were doing the magazine, the Star Wars Insider, and we were doing all of the fulfillment for the Star Wars website. I mean, we we started when StarWars.com first launched. They started a store there, you know, a shop StarWars.com or whatever. Yeah, this is before the Amazon, was, guys. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we did all the fulfillment because we had already been carrying all of the product. And we had four huge warehouses filled with all of the new Episode One product. And so it made sense that, you know, the orders would be directly sent to us off of the website and we would fulfill everything. Um, and, I mean, prior to the movie coming out, sales were just astronomical. Mm. I, I couldn't, we couldn't keep some of the stuff in stock. And within a week or two after the movie opened, sales dropped dramatically. Mm. Now, part of that was not just because people didn't want it as much. Part of that was because that product was everywhere. 
every Walmart, every Target. I mean, every yeah. mom and pop shop at the at the local Walgreens, at the at the gas station, they had Star Wars Episode One product here, there, everywhere. And so we were competing with all of these people, and we couldn't compete in price with somebody like Walmart and Target because they'd order them such bigger quantities than we could. They could get a better price on them. But nevertheless, we started seeing sales drop. Um, and uh, I think it was because people were not as enthralled with the movie uh, after they had seen it. And they thought, well, I need to go back and see it several times to see if I like it as much. And then, you know, the film media started, you know, really dropping on it, you know, and talking yeah. about it in, in negative terms. Um, and it was very painful to hear some of the, the criticism. Mm. Of it, I, I, you know, I mean, I loved the movie, um, and uh, it was very painful to hear some of the criticism about it. Uh, and you know, oh my gosh, this is what we've waited all this time for. This is the return of Star Wars, and they were really brutal at at some point, you know, and talking about you know Jar Jar Binks and yeah, um, you know, really being brutal about you know his character and. Um, in fact, I, even then they were calling, you know, him a racist, racist, you know, in the way he talked and walked and everything. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, um, it was hard to hear all of that. And, uh, um, well, you know, we, famously, we suffered from the, uh, the lack of interest in sales of all the product that we had to invest in as a result of that. Yeah. I mean, famously now looking back, uh, I mean, uh, different, um, not just George. George has talked about it a little bit later on, but um, even like Ahmed Best has been very public about yeah. how some of the backlash has affected him over the years, but professionally and personally. And it's it is it puts a different context on it than I'm sure it felt to some fans. But it, maybe I think it really does play right into what you were talking about just before, which is it, it, it was a unique time where no movie had ever received that level of hype, nor nor ever will again, probably. Well, and you know, you're absolutely right, Riley. And the other thing about that is when you think about the absolute amazing hype and excitement and buzz and anticipation, I don't know that any movie could have lived up to those expectations. I mean, everybody who had had, who had, who was, had loved the Star Wars films watched them so many times, you know, they were part of their life. And here comes this new movie for Star Wars. I don't know how any movie could have lived up to those expectations. Um, and the interesting thing to me is that today, I really believe that The Phantom Menace holds up better than a lot of than the other two prequel movies. Um, mm -hmm. I think it it's a beautiful movie to look at. I think it has some of the best lightsaber duels in any of the Star Wars films. Um, and the music, I mean, you know, John Williams' music um, is just brilliant in, in Episode One, um, And so I think that people are looking at it a little kinder today. Um, For sure. They're not criticizing it quite as much um, because I think the movie holds up over time. Does it have its issues and its problems? Absolutely it does. But I still think that episode one, um, I personally think it holds up better than some of the other films. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how when I look at, back at it as an adult, and, and I, you know, I kind of 
no longer have those rose tinted glasses of the kid, you know, watching his first Star Wars movie. But I, I, I still like I look at the film and, and particularly I would say the two characters that are in, in in my view, probably the most underrated characters in all of Star Wars are Qui Gon Jinn and Shmi Skywalker. Because, totally. Uh, no, totally I agree with you. I mean you. Liam Neeson, everyone appreciates him because he's had this incredible career. He's very recognizable now. But he as a character Really, and I think Dave Filoni kind of breaks it down better than I ever could on a recent Mandalorian um, behind the scenes video that, that was on Disney yep. Plus. But he talks about how, you know, Qui Gon's view of the world and his desire to be Anakin's father figure, and 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 ultimately that that opportunity being denied him, it, it so so poetically sets up the the events and the tragedies that are to follow in the rest of the prequels. Um, particularly it's, it's, it's a mother and father figure that are torn from Anakin. Um, and, and, and it's something that I appreciate now much more as an adult and Pernilla August, like, um, I, I, I would, I would love, love to learn more about that relationship and, and, and that part of the story, because it is odd. It is in this sort of like the middle act of the Phantom Menace slows down a lot by compare comparison to the rest of the film. It has the one big pod race action sequence, but there's a lot of layered and heavy dialogue. Um, that's mostly frankly, Qui-Gon Jinn and, uh, Shmi. And I, and I yeah. love, but it, it, it really, you, you learn more about Anakin as a character through those two characters than you do through just seeing the young through kid. Through Anakin, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, and you know Qui Gon is a. I think he's just a fabulous character, and uh, you know the fact that you know Episode One's the only movie that he's appeared in um, is uh, you know I, I I I was sorely I got to read the script for Episode One about a I don't know eight six months before the movie came out. They, I flew out to Skywalker Ranch and signed my life away, basically, <laughs> saying I would never, I wouldn't say a word about anything that I read in the script. Um, and I remember reading, and I remember loving Qui Gon Jinn. But when I found out he died, I was like, oh, man, he's such a cool character. And I'd already started seeing some images and artwork of how Liam Neeson would look, and I loved Liam Neeson at that point before. So I, I thought he was such a brilliant casting in that character. Mm. But, um, you know, when I found out that he, he died at the end of it, and I thought, oh, man, you know, he's, I would have loved to have seen him carry on throughout more of the films. And I was really disappointed to see that he was, uh, was going to be killed in it. And I thought, well, a force ghost, I guess we can see him back as a force <laughs> ghost at some point. But uh, we, we kind of yeah, got, we certainly was, got it in the Clone Wars. That was nice that we, we, yeah. I feel like Qui-Gon got more of his due throughout, throughout Clone Wars and, and, a, and his brief appearance in Attack of the Clones. Yep, he did. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yep, he did. But it, you know, it was, it was, uh, I, I, he was, he was probably along with Darth Maul, who I thought was just so wickedly mm-hmm. amazing, um, were, were my favorite characters in, uh, in episode one. I just thought the two of them were just brilliant. Yeah, 
Yeah, I man, I I could I, Dan, I could talk to you forever about this stuff. I'm having such a great time. I my I I I've literally I and I've done this before where people you, you I know you guys you comment on the show and you're like it's a podcast. You don't have to leave. I actually do. My wife has prepared uh, a Not dinner, a so I'm problem. heading I'm heading off to dinner here. But I I will say this, Dan. I I'm really hoping, and I'll just ask you right here on the show. I'm I'm hoping we can follow up with you and get a part two and talk about sort of the evolution of Star Wars fandom. Uh, post prequels into the Clone Wars and celebration and maybe some of your work with her universe. I know like the story of Star Wars fandom and the story of this podcast is of like say the last 10 years is, is so different. I'd love to kind of get your take on some of um, Star Wars as it is uh, more today too. But I, I dude, I, we've had such a great time. I really appreciate you coming you can, on the podcast. You can count on it, Riley. We'll do a part two whenever you, uh, you uh, are ready to do it. I yeah. promise you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dan, tell, tell folks where they can uh, get in touch with you or kind of keep up with the latest of what uh, Mr. Dan Madsen's up to. Sure. Well, I am on, uh, I am on Facebook under Dan Madsen. Um, and uh, uh, there's, I have an official page, uh, official Dan Madsen. Um, and then I have my own personal page, which they can look me up under Dan Madsen as well. And I post pretty much the same thing on both of those pages and they can find me on Instagram at Matson8973, and they can find me on Twitter at the Dan Matson. Nice. And that's pretty much my social channels where I post all kinds of interesting things and some of my uh, some of my finds and memories from uh, working on Star Wars and Star and some of the other projects I worked on. For sure, for sure. I'll probably sneak in some Lord of the Rings questions, too. I'm not even going to lie. That's uh, <laughs> all right. I have a lot of history with Lord of the Rings, too. Uh, all right, Dan. Well, we'll have links to everything that you've talked about uh, in the notes for the podcast today. But until next time, may the Force be with you. Sounds good. <laughs>